What's the most important resource that you have? If you really thought about this deeply, I think you'd come to the same conclusion that Joey and I did. It's time. In our newest book, Wealth Without Wall Street, The Three Steps to Financial Freedom Through Passive Income, we talk about how are we tracking that time? Well, what is the thing that we can do to get more of that time back? That's right. If you've ever been listening to our podcast and thought, man, it would be amazing if I could take all the things that you guys have learned over the last 10 years and just summarize them, put them in some way to easily digest them and take action, that's what this book is all about. You're not going to want to miss it. Go to wealthwithoutwallstreet.com forward slash new book and get your copy today. Joey's today's topic gets me so excited for many reasons. One, it brings me back to the very first passive income idea I had all the way back in college, bro. I Uh I may have told you about this before, but my first idea, the way that I was going to become financially free by age 35, that's what I told Megan, was I was going to own self-storage facilities. And she asked me the question, my wife says, Russ, how in the world are you going to own it? Where are you going to get the money? I was like, I don't know where I'm going to get the money. She said, and who's going to run it? Because I know dang well you're not. I was like, my mom. She's like, your mom? Your mom's not going to run a self-storage facility. I was like, why not? It's a beautiful situation. I'll have like the office on the downstairs and the upstairs, like the upstairs apartment is where she lives. She lives rent-free for the rest of her life. What an amazing son I would have been. I mean, just can you imagine a more giving son? Like, I don't think it exists, Russ. That's (laughs) that's pretty amazing. By the way, if you could only imagine my mom, anybody who knows my mom, sweetest lady, school teacher for 30 years, running a self-storage facility, that would have been a no-go. Like when I was a kid, we'd have girlfriends call, right? We, I had girlfriends call (laughs) and I'm like, no, I'm not here. I'm not here. And mom's like, Russ, I'm not lying to him on the phone. I'm going (laughs) to, and I'm like, you're messing it up. (laughs) Like my mom on a phone call would just have been amazing for somebody wanting a facility. But Joey, outside of the stupid dream that I had that never came to fruition, I wish it would have, by the way. Why do you believe this is such a great podcast for people to listen to? Oh, man. Well, I I don't know what your investor DNA is, but I can tell you if you don't like dealing with tenants, toilets or any of those things, self-storage may be a good fit for you. If you're in the in the business of taking something and doubling it in value in the next two and a half to five years, you may want to listen up to what Scott has to say. This guy has been around for 30 years in the space. He actually, he didn't mention this, but offline, he said he's the OG of self-storage. And I, after listening to him, I, got, I tend to believe him. Man. This guy knows his stuff and he walks you through what you need to know about self-storage deals. If at the very least you can pick up those things and apply them to your next deal, man, this is, there's so much to get out of this. Yeah. We we took a long time to this episode because it's so fascinating. Hopefully you'll listen all the way to the end, but if not, if you're interested in talking with Scott, go to selfstorageinvesting.com. We're going to have Scott come and talk to our group when we're live in Nashville at the end of August. So don't forget to go to wealthwaltwallstreet.com for slash live. Get your tickets to that because maybe self-storage is going to be your pathway to becoming financially free. Joey, let's take nothing more from this interview. Let's jump in right now with Scott Myers. Welcome to the Wealth Without Wall Street podcast, your guide to understanding how to get out of the Wall Street rat race 
and start your own mailbox money lifestyle. Now, don't let these handsome Southern draws fool you. These financial minds are teaching our country to enhance savings, increase cash flow, and create passive income, all without the help of Wall Street. Are you ready to break through? Now here are your hosts, Russ Morgan and Joey Murray. All right, Wealth Without Wall Street Tribe, you're in to learn about self-storage today from the master, Scott Myers himself. Scott, so glad to have you on the show today. Thank you, Joey. So glad to be here and to catch up again. Yeah, it's a lot of fun to be on your show, you on our show, lots of conversations. So I know this is going to be a great conversation. I, I do want to take you, though, back to the moment where you mm-hmm. decided to invest in real estate. Everything changed and there was a reason why. Would you take us back to that moment? Yeah. So, um, you know, when I actually, when I started, when I got a job out of college, I was actually had a little bit of money left over after all my bills for the first time in my life. You know, I began looking at, um, you know, all the books on how to invest in Wall Street, stocks, bonds, mutual funds. And I I read Peter Lynch's book and I thought, that's it. He just gave me the roadmap and I'm going to kill it. And uh, so I started buying everything I could get my hands on and, and learning as much as I could. And uh, but the more the more that I learned, the more books I read, I found that there was a, a chapter way in the back or somebody um, that had talked about, uh, oh, by the way, you can also invest in real estate, uh, you know, with retirement funds or, or outside of that. And then the more I dug in, I, I, I recognized that, you know what? The, the wealthiest people in the world didn't make their wealth on Wall Street. They made it in real estate. And so I began to uh, go down that path of, you know, looking at, uh, what it meant to you know supplement my retirement or have a hedge to that at least in bricks and mortar something I could see touch and feel that also produced uh, income and that made sense because one of those books that I read was also Rich Dad Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki and so I was maxing out my my four hundred one k at work I was working for a Fortune five hundred company and then we headed into the dot com crash in nineteen ninety nine. The company I worked for was one of those that made it onto the news because they were cooking the books. And um, overnight, um, Wall Street doesn't reward. They punish those that cook the books. And so overnight, I lost $350,000 in my retirement. And so that's a, that's, a, that's a pivot point. That's a reflection point, um, Russ. And so I- uh, That's a bad day is what that that's is. That's a bad day. <laughs> that's a bad day no matter how you look at it. So my wife and I sat down and begin to put pencil to paper and um you know we'd be kind of kicking around the thought that you know our real estate business was beginning to take off and and so when i began to put pencil to paper i thought you know how many hours did we spend last year doing real estate part-time this part-time hobby of ours to supplement retirement and how much cash is that flow you know throwing off and what's our hourly rate because we never looked at it in terms of an hourly rate from cash flow we'd only looked at it as a supplement for retirement and building that nest egg and so we began to look at the hourly rate of how much we were making in real estate from the cash flow versus how much money I was making working at this W2 job. And it was quite a bit higher. And the retirement piece was the real estate because it was building value. Somebody was uh, paying off the real estate, uh, paying down the, the principal, paying it off. And I would have that asset for retirement, just the same as we had before. And so we put a plan in place um, to, uh, to replace my income you know, with the real estate. And so, you know, if we, if I, we were doing this on the weekends, you know, what would happen if we devoted 40 hours a week to it? Um, well then, you know, of course it wasn't 40 hours a week, then it was 60 hours a week when you started, because that's what it took uh, to begin with. And we learned those lessons along the way, but to answer your question, that was, um, it was a dot-com crash and, and, you know, that caused us to do the math exercise and to recognize that, you know what, um, not only is our retirement going to be decided by us, but so is our income. We're not going to let uh, all of this uh, be uh, befallen to somebody else making decisions instead of us. I love the 
the transition there, like you didn't just immediately have all the lights turned on. You were just kind of starting to slowly mm-hmm. get there. But what was the real estate you were investing in to begin with? Mm-hmm. What types? Yeah. So we were, this is a, back in 1993, I've been in this uh, business for 30 years now. And so the first rental uh, real estate that that I purchased were single family houses. And we were buying these with assumable VA mortgages. And I don't think there's any of those left uh, around uh, any longer. And so we took a home equity loan out uh, on the house that we had and we bought one of those um, and did the Burr method before it became the Burr method or coined as such, um, rehabbed it, um, refinanced it, rented it out. And then we took that capital, um, the equity that we built into it out and then we bought two more uh, on also on VA assumable mortgages. And so then the, the two turned into four to eight. And then I think we were up to about 20 houses and then um, we didn't have that, that freedom in the cash flow. It was 60 hours a week plus. And um, it, we struggled along the way, maybe a little more optimistic and maybe didn't set realistic expectations or do the math correctly, perhaps, but um, it, it wasn't allowing us uh, the freedom and the flexibility and the, and the, and the money to uh, do what we wanted to do or achieve our goals. And so I thought, well, um, I just need to double down and economies of scale will fix this. And so we bought some apartment buildings and really, I mean, that helped a little bit, but at the end of the day, just kind of amplified the, the problems that come with a uh, rental real estate uh, that involves uh, habitational real estate and, and the tenants and toilets. And, um, you know, we're getting to that place where we're hiring property managers and property management companies, but it was just a slog. And at the end of the day, even when we have those folks in place, you know, the buck still stops with us and, and all the things that people do when they live in your real estate, you know, it just began, we, we began to just kind of get a little frustrated and kind of tired and we began to lose faith in our fellow man. And uh, at that, that point we decided uh, yeah, maybe we need to take a look at something else. And so, well, what is there in real estate, rental real estate that doesn't involve people and it's either parking lots or storage. And so, um, that was my wife's suggestion is, you know, she knew there was, I was running the, the central Indiana real estate investor group. We had 600 investors in our group in Indianapolis and she'd been talking with a couple that was younger than us in self-storage and, and they had smiles on their faces and they weren't stressed out and they were able to go on a cruise because they didn't have to have a cell phone because there's no tenants, there's no toilets, there's no plumbing. There's, you know, police don't show up for, you know, any, any, you know, the junk doesn't fight with the junk next door, um, you know, things like that. And so we began looking into the business and um, man, I loved what I saw. And um, that was all it took. You know, if somebody doesn't pay, um, we have lien laws, not habitational eviction laws. And if they don't pay, you lock them out and you sell their stuff off and you recoup your money. And then the turn is blowing out a metal box that's sitting on a concrete slab. And it was like, that's it. So we sold, um, you know, methodically sold uh, all the houses and apartments and then just uh, went full bore into self-storage. So it found me. (laughs) How many of us listening to this are like, yes, please, yes. (laughs) Right? Like, I mean, I tell the, the, the story of my, my first piece of real estate and it, it was because of the, you know, two months in when the, the neighbor upstairs flooded my unit and my $97 a month was quickly evaporated. Uh, <laughs> my third pro bills, right? Like it's just, it goes for six years into the future. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's, it's so much uh, nicer to think about, man. I get something and they stay, right? Like, yeah. Talk, talk a little yeah. bit about that. I mean, like, why, wh- why self is, why self storage is so important? One, you said I don't have to deal with the people, right? Mm-hmm. But also mm-hmm. talk a little bit about the stay rate. Like, what is the yeah. occupancy rate, the, the uh, retention rate of customers mm-hmm. inside of self storage? 
You know, so we, um, that's interesting. Uh, we just had a mastermind and uh, one of the folks that we bring in is actually from your neck of the woods, one of our consultants. And uh, he gave a presentation with um, the new set of numbers um, from last year and, and, and tracking all the data. And he geeks out on that and we're thankful because of it. And, and now it used to be roughly anywhere between nine to 12 months was kind of the average length of stay. And now we're between 14 to 16 months. And, and there's a number of reasons behind that. And, and again, that's the average because uh, uh, we bought, Russ, we bought facilities where some of these clients are, you know, they're not tenants. They don't live there, but our clients or customers, they've had their stuff in there for seven, eight, 13 years. Um, they just, and, and sometimes it's really literally just junk. Sometimes it is treasures. Either way, some of those folks think that they're junk or treasures and, and they just continue to pay um, to keep it there because they don't have room in their house or it's just easier to write that check or let it ride on the debit card rather than trying to figure out, you know, how to sell it or how to throw it away. And, and, you know, sometimes it's heirlooms, even though it's just really, you know, an old couch that was given to them when somebody passed away, they just can't get rid of it. Um, so there's a number of reasons. Um, in addition to small businesses that, that they keep their inventory there. Um, they don't operate out of that facility, but they operate out of Starbucks, their truck or the kitchen table and their, their inventory, their business is located at the, the self storage facility because it's cheap warehouse space and it's small it's flexible when times are good in the economy and people are moving um, or they're, they're renovating, you know, the, the basements or their whole house, they put stuff in storage. I mean, there's a number of needs and really we're, we're kind of in the demand. Uh, we're a demand based business. So death, divorce, bankruptcy, you know, uh, people downsizing, you know, we, we call it the D's of self storage, you know, anytime that there is a, a life event, we're in the kind of the trauma and transition business. And there's always trauma and transition. And especially when we head into a, a recession, you know, that puts a strain on businesses and individuals and, and businesses and individuals downsize and they put their stuff into storage when they do so. Um, or if businesses have to close, they put stuff into storage or if somebody gets kicked out of the house because they were doing something they shouldn't have done, um, their stuff goes into storage um, until they figure their life out again. And so um, for those reasons, uh, that's why people enter into storage. And then for the reasons why they stay, that's uh, that's really varied. Well, and I know you, you talked about stepping into self-storage as like the very first one. That's not mm -hmm. the last one that you ever did. Mm -hmm. Talk about your, your now like kind of yeah. rise to, to fame in the space mm -hmm. of self-storage. Um, well, my rise to fame looks exactly like it did when I began. It's because the same business model has been replicated and we've been um, doing it over and over and over again um, since 2005 when I got into storage. And it's uh, buying Class C facilities um, in the secondary tertiary market and improving the operations, you know, leasing it up, raising rates, adding technology to reduce the, the payroll and the expenses, yeah, uh, doing our best to mitigate ta taxes as much as possible, doing cost segregation and reallocating our taxes, structuring things uh, differently, creating value, adding ancillary income streams like selling uh, renter's insurance and locks, boxes, moving supplies, adding U-Haul agencies, you know, all those things to just maximize the NOI. And then either refinancing and pulling some cash out to go buy more or to sell um, or to what we're, what we've got, the place that we got to now, I guess what has changed, Joey, is that, you know, we're, we're now aggregating. So, you know, the big roll up, uh, the big scaling up in our industry is, um, you know, the race is on. We're in our industry in self-storage, there's 80% of the facilities are still owned by mom and pop, whereas multifamily assisted living mobile home parks, they're, they're more mature and it's really the opposite. 20% um, is owned by mom and pop is 80% 80 is owned by the REITs. The good news for us is um, if we buy them right, we turn create value in them and then we roll them up, then we can sell them for a higher multiple um, to the REITs, to the bigger national players. And so, 
that's what's changed. And then, um, you know, along the way to grow to where we are right now, you know, we had to get really good at raising private equity and syndicating and uh, creating funds. And so that's the, the, the piece that we've added on to fuel the growth. And then also to get yield, we've uh, we learned how to develop. And so we brought on a number of folks um, in the industry that uh, partner with us in joint ventures, um, the general contractors. Sometimes we just contract them on our own. We do a lot of joint ventures with our, our, our general contractors, our GCs, and um, just, you know, doing anything and everything as we learn how to put a deal together on the capital stack to make sure it's profitable for everyone, including our uh, first and foremost, our investors. So long way to answer to your question, but we, we do lots of things in self storage in addition to, to teaching people how to do it as well. And, and um, yeah, because, because my computer's um, not working, that's the only, um, <laughs> that's the only picture I could put up on it right now is uh, we do have a podcast. And uh, so we're just building a community of people that are doing the same things that we're doing and uh, at scale and then uh, all learning and growing and doing it together. So when you say class C, I, I don't want to yeah. uh, leave anybody behind, especially my business yeah. partner in here in tertiary <laughs> markets, break that down just a little yeah. simpler for us. So, you know, major MSAs, you know, that is a Miami, that is a the New York's, um, you know, capital cities, you know, the larger cities. And I forget there's, you know, roughly for real estate purposes, many, the top 50 MSAs or metropolitan statistical areas, you know, the largest cities in the, in the country. And then you have the suburbs that would be secondary and then tertiary area, you know, that's just a little further outside of the suburbs. It's not necessarily rural, but it's just heading a little further out. It's where there's still growth, growth coming, and that's where we want to operate in. There's still, you know, a, you know, a number of folks that are there, a critical mass of people in order to make the business work that actually utilize storage. But we want to be, we want to follow the pipes, if you will, you know, where they're going, where the path of progress is. And if they're building a new ring uh, uh, in the highway system around the city, that's where we want to be is um, further on the outskirts and in the path of progress. Um, class A facility, that's the three-story gleaming facilities located right next to the highway with the lights shining on it, um, all temperature controlled uh, with all the bells and whistles on it, you know, state-of-the-art security, you know, fencing around it, you know, one and a half to two staff members inside, professionally dressed. Um, class B is single-story, maybe in the in the suburbs, um, very nice facilities, maybe temperature controlled, um, professional management, and then the Class C is a little further out, um, the mom and pops that owned uh, many, many years ago. Haven't kept up with the times. Um, the guy behind the counter, maybe wearing a wife beater tank top and chewing on a cigar and you know, nothing professional about um, and, and may or may not look up when you walk in the door. Um, but those are the types of facilities where we know that there's, you know, if they don't have a website, we'll add one. If they have one, we're going to make a professional and we're going to put a professional salesperson behind the counter and uh, do everything to drive the NOI. Whereas um, some of those owners, they've just um, become, you know, just happy. You know, they, they don't have to raise rates and um, it's paid off, it's paid down and they're doing fine and they don't have to really lift a finger. It just uh, churns out cash, but uh, we can come in and we can turn up the wick on those facilities and those are the ones we can really make an impact on. Hey, Joey, what he's saying is the place that I passed on buying met all of those criteria. It was way out here where Starlink would be required. <laughs> Secondly, the guy behind the counter definitely was wearing a wife beater. And I don't know if it was a cigar in his mouth, but it was definitely smoking. I'm just I'm just saying we we missed on an opportunity, I think. Well, you did. I mean, you, you just had your wife beater on right before the show. That's not, you know, this is this is your your type of deal. Um, but Scott, you mentioned something about cost segregation analysis for yeah. storage. And I've only really heard that applied to multifamily or even single family. Mm -hmm. How, like talk a little bit about, I mean, I don't want to get into like the super weeds, but sure. in general, what, what kind of a value does that provide to your investors? Yeah. When you 
in, implement one of those. Yeah. Well, I won't get super into the weeds because I don't, I don't understand when we get super into the weeds. That's why we hire the, the cost segregation consultants and the engineers to come out. So essentially, you know, within the tax laws, we have the ability to be able to write off under section 179 things that we can depreciate and accelerate a little bit sooner because the useful life is a lot shorter. And many of those uh, items that are really not necessarily considered capital expenditures or, you know, the structure itself, but there are some of the moving parts that we can depreciate a lot faster. So for us, that just means a bigger tax write-off sooner which means more to the bottom line sooner, which means that we can then go redeploy that capital. For our our equity partners that come alongside of us in our syndications and in our fund, you know, many of these folks are coming into our projects and they've got huge capital gains uh, that they want to offset. And so if we can pass that depreciation through at an accelerated rate to them, um, that just makes our investments more attractive to them as well. And so with, with self-storage, um, yeah, uh, in, in contrast to multifamily, and, and I'm, not, I'm not beating multifamily up, um, I made a lot of money in multifamily. I, I didn't do as well as I would have liked to, have, um, and I'm partial to self-storage. Um, however, the stats are, you know, the stats are the stats, and, and we can write off in some of our facilities up to 80% can be depreciated in year one when we can do that under the CARES Act. Uh, but at the end of the day, we still, it, it can find and dig in, because we got, you know, when we build our structures, um, guess what? The walls move. We can depreciate those faster. They they can be detached and we can move them back and forth. The doors, same thing with the roll-up doors. They're not a, a fixture. Uh, the building, the shell, and the roof is, um, and the asphalt, and, and then the fence around it, but everything else inside of it, which means that, you know, you know roughly 80% of it, depending on how old it is and how worn down it is, you know, from the gate um, itself to the security system, you know, much of that can be written off um, in year one or in a very short and accelerated time frame. So um, yet again, with, you know, I have my top 10 reasons why I love self-storage over the other asset classes I invested in, but uh, that's just another one. And that's a real big one. Oh, that's super cool. All right. I I want to break down maybe some some key elements when you're considering mm -hmm. buying a, a facility or even you know developing or whatever it may be. There's probably three or four items that you're like must yeah. have these things. Yeah, I, I definitely want to talk about that because you talked about the ability to expand a second ago, right? I know that mm -hmm. that's important when mm -hmm. probably especially now that you're competing with the big dollars out there. Finding yeah. a property is probably getting a little bit harder. The ability mm -hmm. to expand. Talk a little bit about that mm -hmm. and what other elements mm -hmm. do you believe are um, needed in order for you mm -hmm. to make the decision to purchase? Mm -hmm. Yeah, boy, there's a lot of them. So, I'll, but I'll boil it down to the biggies as you asked. And, you know, when we, um, when we're looking at an existing facility, you know, we want to make a two to two and a half X return when we exit on a, on a property. And that's usually within five years. And that's for ourselves and, and also for our equity partners in order to do so, you know, we need to be able to build value into it. And the best way to build value in real estate is, uh, well, from a development standpoint is you start with a piece of dirt and then you put a building on it and an income stream. And that's how you create a lot of value. But an existing facility, we look for, again, many of those mom and pops that, you know, they, they left a lot on the table. It's still got a lot of horsepower left uh, in it that we just need to tap into uh, in terms of the operations and the how to grow the income, add income streams, reduce expenses. But if it's got an acre or two, you know, that's already zoned, that's part of it, and they just decided not to build on it, the zoning's in place. And we just need to bring the buildings and put them in. That is the quickest way because we're buying that piece of property based upon the cash flow in place, which in, in many cases, we we really get that land for free. The bank's not going to lend on that, um, or at least uh, not too much. So that is that that is the best way. Um, the caveat to that, however, Russ, is that 
you know, we have to look into the market. There's a, there are some folks out there that think, well, uh, we know that the average occupancy across the United States and stabilization for storage is 93%. And so I found this facility over here, it's only at 65%, which means that I'm going to buy it and I'm going to take it up to 93 and, and here's the numbers I can extrapolate. Um, but what they, they failed to do is look into the market then. And, and they didn't realize within their market, which is really just a five mile trade area, because that's all the farther that people will typically travel to their, to their stuff, um, that, that it has been over built it's oversupplied and everybody's at 60 to 65 percent and they keep lowering their rates you know trying to undercut and you know, we all know that the uh, you know in the race to the bottom <laughs> the first person there loses they don't win and uh and then they drag the rest of the market down and so you may buy a facility at 65 percent, and you see the national averages here but um, if you never have the ability to do so then guess what you bought it stabilized and if you were if you were betting on taking that to a different place uh, you needed to look into the market then you, you shot yourself in the foot um, likewise with the development, very similar, but really that's driven by rates. I mean, it's driven by competition and the supply index. If that's a, a lot of uh, competition, the lower the rates. But if we, if we find the rates are really low, you know, I can get the land for free by the time I put a building on it, you know, and pay for that capital, um, to borrow that money, to get it, you know, to, to fund the operations, to get it up to stabilization or break even. Well, it may take me five years in a bad market versus two years or two and a half years in a good market. And I may write on a money and, and the project just, um, you know, implodes before I get there. So it's all about the rates in, in development and the supply index. It's about the supply index, um, in a strong market. And then, you know, in a macro sense, you know, is it growing, you know, is there growth in that market? Is it declining? Is it been declining, which means it's going to continue to spiral downwards and you're not going to be able to raise rates and pretty soon your customers are going to be leaving. And, and I think probably the biggest mistake that people make, maybe not something that I'm looking for, Russ, but I think the biggest mistake that people make is that they just don't understand how to underwrite and they don't understand how to properly construct their capital stack. You know, where's their cash coming from and are they borrowing it? Um, even if it is friends and family money, you know, when's the rate going to reset? When is their loan due? Where are interest rates going to be then? And, and are, there, are they realistic and being able to create enough value when it comes time to refinance in a market that we're in right now where rates have doubled and and the LTV is 65% where you know, 65% at 8% interest rate, and they bought it at 90% at 3%, 3.5% interest rate. Well, many times that doesn't pencil out if you didn't create a ton of value in the past three years, and, and they may be losing their properties. And so I think being realistic and looking, you know, a little further down the road, I mean, you know, to sum it all up, we all, we all know that we, we make money in our investments when we sell. Um, but in real estate, you've got to plot the path of profitability and understand what your exit strategy looks like and the timing of it and what the market is going to look like at that time instead of just, you know, being a gunslinger and just uh, praying and hoping for the best. If you've listened to our show for any length of time, you've heard us talk about infinite banking and how we were able to use that concept to create over $50,000 a month in passive income. But it's just not that easy to figure out how does this all connect into my own personal system? Stallion, that's why we created the Passive Income Operating System, bro. It shows you how to turn active income into passive income. It makes all the steps come together. If you would like to get access to it as a podcast listener, we've never given this away in public before. Go to whatswhatwallstreet.com forward slash P-I-O-S. There was nothing worse than walking into class when you're in school and the teacher saying, pop quiz day. Why? Because you were unprepared. Are you unprepared, though, for financial freedom? Don't be. Find out how close you are by taking our 30-second quiz at wealthwithoutwallstreet.com forward slash quiz. 
I'm, I'm going to jump in with a, a question. Russ was too embarrassed to ask you, so he was texting me this. Um, <laughs> what breakdown for a supply index? Like you throw that yep. around and mm-hmm. I don't want to just gloss over and sure. assume people know what that means. Okay. Um, well, I'll, I'll make it. Yeah. I'm not, I can't get into that game and start criticizing you. I was going to say, I'll make it elementary for you, Russ. Uh, don't get that. That don't get to you. This we is, don't know each other well this enough. This is still okay. Our, our audience is used to us just shooting, you know, shots yeah. across the bow here. So this well, is yeah, like, I, I, pick a I side, but I'm just saying, if you're going to pick a side, it's going to, it's, it's going to be rough on you. I'll, I'll, I'll behave. I'm not going to come into your living room and kick my shoes up on your table. Uh, so um, supply index um, is, is is just that. I'm sure most people understand it. it's demand versus supply. And so, you know, we've got some baselines in self-storage that we follow. And again, my, my folks that are listening that are in self-storage just say, yeah, Scott, but, um, but you know, for years it's been somewhere around seven and a half to eight square foot per capita in a, in a trade area in a market. So we define our trade areas as roughly five miles. You know, the closer you get to the interior of a, you know, a city in the, in the urban areas, it's maybe three miles and, you know, like downtown where the high rises are, people aren't going to travel more than a mile um, to their stuff. So let's say within a three to five mile radius, um, you know, it's 10, there's 10 square foot of self-storage per, per person, per capita. Yeah, you could say that it's, um, you know, it's oversupplied or it's getting oversupplied. It all does depend, depend upon the demand as well. You know, there's areas that do have more demand. Uh, Florida doesn't have basements and if it's an area with a lot of um, smaller houses, row housing or, or apartments, uh, you know, higher concentration of apartments, you know, there's a, a greater demand for storage. But all things being equal, you know, if you're in that 10, 12, 14 square foot per person, yeah, you're probably not going to get the rate sheets you want and there's going to be, you know, a lot of competition. Conversely, you know, four square foot per capita, you know, again, all things being equal, you need to look at the rental rates, but, um, you know, that's most likely a good market that is undersupplied and underserved and is a good place to expand or develop. I love that. Thank you so much. Getting the cookies on the lowest shelf for me is so helpful. <laughs> All right. Here's a reason why. So there was a property that literally was a mile from my house. I mean, it was at the mm-hmm. very front of the neighborhood uh, where I'm at. And I, I looked at it, but the biggest concern I had was who's going to run this thing. I know yeah. I wasn't going to run it. And the guy in the white beater smoking, whatever he was smoking, I did not want him <laughs> running. It. I did not feel confident that was going to work out well because the guy who wanted to sell it actually was a friend of mine. His dad had just recently passed. He inherited it. He didn't know what to do with it. He didn't want to run it. And he was nervous yeah. of that dude. Mm-hmm. And so I was just mm-hmm. thinking like, how mm-hmm. important is it to find an operator, find a manager to run these sort of places? Let me draw an analogy here or, or tell a small story. And we've seen a number of folks that, you know, the, the expense load at a self-storage uh, facility, you know, we try to be in that, you know, all things being equal, our, our million and a half to two, two million uh, dollar deals that uh, they're, you know, 250, 300 units um, that are in those uh, secondary uh, markets. You know, we, we need to look at payroll because it's our, our second highest line item next to, to property taxes. And what, unfortunately, what many folks do is they, they try to reduce that as much as possible. And so they want to put a warm body behind the desk. And so who are you going to hire? Well, you know, the more qualified person, the, the higher the salary. And as a percentage, you know, it just takes away from the overall value. Sometimes it you know, doesn't meet your debt service coverage ratio or just less money in your pocket. So they'll, um, they'll, they'll look around the landscape and they'll say, well, you know, the gal that cut my hair last week, she's really nice. I could see her doing very well behind the counter here. And she seems like she's on it. She's held her job for at least three months. I think I'll hire her. I can do this for, you know, 12 bucks an hour, part-time, no, no benefits. And, and here's my bottom line. And if you, if you take a step back and it's just like, you just put, 
a hairstylist or somebody you met at the hostess stand or at you know the the men's suit shop behind the desk at your two million dollar investment and and you are tasking them to grow that investment to a 2x return to be worth four million dollars in five years is that really a strategy that is achievable or realistic? Um, so therein, therein lies the, you know, where is that balance? You've got to get somebody in there with the proper incentives that, is, uh, that has a sales mindset. They're, they're selling from the phone to get the person into the facility. And then they're selling them on the unit and then selling them on the, uh, the upgrades, uh, locks, boxes, moving supplies, um, anything else. And they have to have that sales um, mindset. And you have to answer the phone. Now, this is a commodity. They're not looking at school systems or anything else. You know, this is close. You picked up the phone. I need storage right now. I'm not going to spend a week shopping around, bring my husband back and, you know, look at this and that. I need a place for his stuff and I need it to do it today because I got to pick up the kids. And so you got a 10 by 10. It's clean, secure cameras. I took a look at it. I, we can move stuff in on Saturday. Done. Sign me up. Here's my card. I got to make a phone call. I'll be back in two minutes. That's, that's what the transaction looks like. But so you've got to have a person that feels that sense of urgency, but also does kind of somewhat understand business or you, at the very least, you need to make it very simple and give them three things that they need to be selling for. And then you incentivize them to do so. Man, that you broke that down so simply that makes so much sense. And I do think people make that mistake of putting the wrong person oh behind there because I called that mm -hmm. place forever. Cause it also subbed as a U-Haul facility. And I don't know if that was a plus or a minus, but mm -hmm. just trying to get a U-Haul from that place, the person would never answer the phone. Well, mm -hmm. imagine if I was trying to get a storage, you know, storage room in there. It, it is it, it, that that clicks for me having yeah. that that urgency, being autonomous, being willing to to be flexible and, and adjust mm -hmm. to certain environments. I, there's a lot of things we use a thing called the culture index whenever oh, we're, yeah. we're hiring mm -hmm. people into our company. And mm -hmm. I would see like how vital it would be for that specific role to make sure yeah. you have that mm -hmm. person. Mm -hmm. 100%. I, I, I would love to go into a case study. I'd, I'd love to mm -hmm. see kind of how from, from start to finish a, a project has worked just to help Joey be able to understand, right? Like help him make sense of this deal. Because I know after we get off this call, it's going to be like, Russ, you know, the next thing needs to be on our passive income report is self-storage. So mm -hmm. let, let's Absolutely. walk through a deal. Yeah. So um, let me let me try not to blend them uh, together. Um, I mean, what we're looking at right now is something that we've done in the past. You know, I, I've been investing for quite a while, and and now also in self storage, and it and it's interesting. And I'll just make this call it a public service announcement or whatever you want to take away from it. Uh, uh, maybe wisdom from the past. You know, when I began investing in self storage, we were at eight percent interest rates. And, you know, so we we're buying and, and we had to create a deal. I mean, there isn't low hanging fruit. You can't go to the self-storage store and just buy a 10 cap deal that has a two point spread versus the, the interest rate. You know, deals are made. Um, they're not found. We create them. We make them. You know, we know what to uncover and, and, and seek. Um, but also, if, sometimes if we can't get to that price and if something doesn't pencil out, that, that, that means that, well, guess what? We, we can do this on terms, um, especially if it doesn't pencil out enough and the bank won't finance it. And so we've, we've had to dust off and um, looking forward to and digging into dusting off our, our seller financing techniques. And that's what we've done in the past. And we're getting ready to do that again. And many of the investors that are listening, uh, uh, are, I'm sure, are, are very well aware of that. And so... We're, we're putting together a, a deal. Well, we, let me see. We put together a deal recently um, that included, it, it included just that. We had a, um, this was a mom and pop facility um, where 
we knew that it was going to be difficult to get this thing across the finish line because um, um, the number, the seller's expectations of value versus ours and, and essentially the market's uh, uh, value um, was uh, completely different. Um, you know, well, my neighbor and I talked to somebody, you know, in our investment group and, you know, they sold for X, uh, you know, $200 a square foot. And, you know, this is a class A facility downtown and he's, you know, over here and hasn't done maintenance in five years, never raised rates. And it's, you know, completely different. And, and so when we went entered into that, uh, into that project, well, we said, well, um, we're interested in the facility, you know, it's in, in the area, we've got others in the facility and it would be great to add into our portfolio. We, you know, we can manage it well, run it under our brand. And so we're interested as long as the price is right. And so tell me, where are you selling? And, you know, we always know heading into a project like that, uh, you know, well, anything's for sale, including my wife, if the price is right, you know, that's not your don't want her and that's not a place to start negotiation or, <laughs> you know, somebody's sick in our partnership or a spouse is sick and we got a small amount of time left and we're going to sell and, and enjoy our time together, or we depreciate it, or we're going to trade in, trade up, you know, that there, there has to be a compelling reason. And his, uh, his reason uh, fell uh, in between that. And that was a uh, competition was coming. Some of it was from us. Uh, that's why he reached out to us and other places. And he was just scared. He was just generally, you know, nervous about the marketplace. I should say not scared. And so we recognized that um, it was time to test the waters, but you know, his, his books and records were in unit number 204, some in the back of his truck, some of it in his ex-girlfriend's place. And, you know, we couldn't put together, you know, a solid set of books and records and underwriting to even take to a lender. And what we could piece together, you know, again, simple, predictable business model, we pieced together, you know, what the P&L was. Industry averages, we've been in the business and a lot of it's public knowledge anyways. We knew what the property taxes were, we could see the money that he was bringing in, you know, we were 90% of the way there with that. We, we filled in the rest but the amount that he wanted, you know, just didn't pencil out. And so we took off our sales hat and put on our consulting hat and, and just said, Hey, we're not your buyer anymore at this price. Uh, it's just not going to work. As you see, and we show them our underwriting, um, it, the dead service coverage row isn't, isn't made here. You know, we just, uh, no bank is going to take it in and want to praise for this. So if you want that price, if you have to have it, you've got two options, you know, we can work out something with terms, and then get you perhaps close to that price, but you've got to give us some better terms and maybe delay some interest um, or, or lower the interest rate. The good news is you still get money for the property. You don't have to run it anymore and you get more than you would if you just sold it outright because you get interest on it. You know, the biggest buildings downtown here are the ones that are owned by the banks and that's how they do it. So if, if you're interested in that, we can show you how. Otherwise, you know, we could also help you and show you how you can raise the value because that's what we do. That's what we've done. You've seen our facilities over here that we've done very well with. Um, I, we'll show you how to raise the value of your facility. And then, you know, a year from now, when we come back to you, we, we may be able to get you this price. And so by that point, you know, they, they're ready to sell. They've, you know, most likely in a position they've already spent the money that uh, they think they're going to get for their facility. And so it's just a matter of working out the terms. And so, you know, we are, um, we're, we're bifurcating, we bifurcated the purchase agreement into um, the property and then the business because the beauty of self-storage is that you have an operating company and a property company if you want to split it up that way. And so we bought the real estate and um, that is what we recorded on the tax roll because we were going to have a hefty increase in property taxes. And that was one way in our underwriting that we could diffuse that. And then um, then we purchased the operating business on terms. And it started out at 0% for six months because, hey, we need that cash flow because, you know, in a polite way, 
you haven't done any maintenance on this thing and we need to fix this, 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 and this until we get to the place where it's cash flowing so that we can pay you the payments. And then it's going to be 2% for the balance of this year. And then it's going to go up to 4% and then it's going to go up to 6% in year three. And at the end of year three, we will cash you out. We will refinance um, um, or we may do something with it, uh, but we will cash you out three years uh, at the most, but most likely we will do something before that. And that was a deal structure that worked for him. He could. He didn't have to pay a lot of capital gains taxes because he was the bank. You guys are very familiar with what that looks like, obviously. And he did get cash at the table for for the real estate, and he had built up enough equity because he'd owned it for a number of years um, that it made sense. And so that is, um, I, I would say, that's a cookie cutter type deal that you can construct at, uh, in any given time with just a couple of little nuances and things that we've learned along the way, and just conversations of getting to know what the seller's motivations are and, and doing anything and everything you can to, to meet them there and, and making sure that the deal still works. I'm going to go ahead and disagree with you. Um, there's nothing cookie cutter about what you just explained, <laughs> Correct. Um, especially if you can use the word bifurcating. Uh, Russ is still like he's using his foot to move the, the dictionary right now. Just to find I would what, I would try to type that one in. Tertiary was hard enough for his job. That one I'm not even right. going to try to replicate. There's you, you don't have to explain it. We know Scott is an expert in this area. No doubt. <laughs> No doubt. And, uh, but that, that's really cool. Now what's the expectation on that deal? If you could bring the future to the present, yeah. Mm -hmm. assuming, I mean, we're assuming a lot, I'm not holding you to it, but I just would love to hear that's yep. the beginning of the deal in right. your mind. What's the exit? Yeah. You asked that and I didn't answer it. Um, you know, typically if we, especially if we're bringing private equity in, but in, in this case we're, we're not, but we're, we're looking for a, a two to two and a half X two to two and a half times return, you know, within five years. Um, and that model typically works when we're raising private equity and for ourselves. So if we're buying it for a million, then we, within five years, we need to be exiting at 2 million and a small property like that, we should be able to move the needle and sell it within two to two and a half years to be able to turn that around the operations, maybe do an expansion and, and, and lease some of that up. Um, but ultimately that's, that's really what we're looking to do. So we're not, um, again, we're not going into the self-storage retail store and picking up something off the shelf that's 90% occupied and, and rates are at the top of the market. That doesn't do any of us any good. It doesn't help us achieve our goals. It's certainly, you know, from the beginning, we had to do that if we were going to be able to replace an income, you know, and, and allow me to continue to do what I'm doing and my wife to continue to raise the kids. You know, we were, we're swinging for the fences. You know, we had to hit, you know, triples at, at, at least, if not home runs and grand slam home runs. And they're out there. And, and we know how to find them and we, and we also know how to create them. So that's, you know, I guess in a rough framework, you know, we need to be exiting at two to two and a half times uh, return within five years. That's so cool. Well, I, I'll tell you what, this has definitely got my wheels turning, uh, Russ. I, I know that you know, I'm going to be hitting you up after this to figure out how we're going to get into the self-storage game. <laughs> but man, Scott, thank you so much for being willing to come on and share your expertise with us and just how others can be involved in this. If people want to connect with you outside of the community, I know that you'll be in the app and, and be available for people to talk to you, but outside of there, what would you encourage them to go to? Yeah, you know, the, uh, the link is on the screen for those that are watching right now. 
but uh, selfstorageinvesting.com. Um, that is really literally all things self-storage because we do all things uh, self-storage. We, we teach about the business. We have um, seminars. Uh, we do joint ventures. Um, but everything about uh, how to learn to do it on your own, uh, multiple resources, free resources, white papers, software that you can uh, pull down and learn about what we're doing. Um, in addition to that, uh, passively invest, uh, which I know is near and dear to the hearts of uh, folks that are here as well. You can kind of reverse engineer and take a to look at what we're doing just to get another business model to be able to learn from to see you know how some of the folks are doing it in self-storage and uh don't forget to check out our missions page as well we're doing some pretty cool things with uh, what we've been able to uh, achieve and the success and the resources that uh, that is now granted to us by god in this uh in this industry as well uh, I, I love that and, and by the way tribe we are working on getting scott to come and maybe talk at the inner circle live event in nashville in august so show some love his way. Maybe we can all encourage him to, to show up. Maybe you'll show up with us and, and hear about self-storage. Because I think this is so fascinating. And the more we understand, the more we know if we want to take action, does it fit our investor DNA? So, Scott, on our uh, passive income matrix, we don't have self-storage as one of our options. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have to spend time with you, pick your brain, and figure out what would be uh, some of those things that help people connect to so they understand if this would be a great fit for them. Thank you for coming on. It's been uh, a, a pleasure and fascinating listening to you. Yeah, my pleasure, Russ. Uh, thanks so much. Appreciate uh, everything that you and Joey are doing. It's always uh, good to spend time with you guys and uh, look forward to, uh, to the next time we're in the same room together. Likewise. Well, thank you for listening to this podcast. If you found value, please stop what you're doing unless you're driving. And take time and rate and review the show. That's how people find us when they get to see that this is a show that others are liking. And that's how the uh, the internet works, Joey. That's how they move us up the ladder so that they will actually share it with other people. I know we're in the top 1% of podcasts. I want to be in the top 1% of 1% of podcasts because of people just like you who've taken the time to share it with other people. We always uh, appreciate you listening. Have an amazing day. This has been the Wealth Without Wall Street podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show to break free of the Wall Street mindset and begin building wealth on your own terms in places you understand so that your wealth will never run dry. See you next episode.